Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. My name is Steve Edwards. I'm from Long Beach, California by way of Los Angeles County. My childhood consists of growing up in both cities of Long Beach and Los Angeles, California. By way of Pensacola, Florida, we came to California in 1967. I think I was five years old when we came to California. First place we lived on was on 47th and Figueroa as far as a child. You know, see, my father was very abusive towards my mother. So I got to see a lot of that by me being the oldest. You know, he would, um, he would always try to tell me that um, by you being older, you're supposed to watch over them and do stuff like that. So my father was more like a bully towards me. So, cause he was trying to make me do things when I wasn't ready for it at the time. I used to tell him, man, I'm only, I'm only five or six. How am I supposed to know what to do with a kid that's two or three? You know, because of the fact that he didn't have a father, you know what I'm saying? So he tried to install that, what he didn't have. And to me, he, I guess you could say he loved him, but he had a funny way of showing how he loved it, you know what I'm saying? One case in point, I could tell you, my little sister, I love her to death, but he, she told him that I hit her. And he like, what you here for now? Like, I didn't hit her. So he's, this is funny. He got one of my hardwood tracks. And you know, back in those days, our families believe in real structure and discipline. He took a hardwood track and whooped me with it. So I said, the next day, I threw away every last hardwood track I had in the house. After that, it's just little stuff he used to do when I was a child just to try and get me to be right. But he didn't know him. the stuff he was doing was very abusive. I learned that later on in life while I was in prison about how parents do, treat their kids when they try to bully them into doing things that they wasn't ready for. Because back then, in the 70s, in the early 70s, we used to watch a lot of black cetacean movies and see I was fascinated by that stuff. And so I had an uncle who went to school with Tookie and Jamel. Everybody knew who Tookie was. Tookie was one of the founders of the Crips back in the day. So back in the day, I used to watch and see those guys come to my mother's, my grandmother's house. And I was fascinated by that type of lifestyle that they were living, because you know, Black Panthers was going out and the Crips and Bloods was just starting to come in in the early 70s. So we was infatuated with anything that had to do with showing black power or a black structure or whatever. And growing up in a Crip neighborhood, that's where all I seen. My name is Cheryl Thomas. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I'm the only girl of five boys. My brothers spoiled me. They sheltered me immensely. I was raised in church. Um, my grandmother um, was a strong woman in God, strong in the community. Everyone loved and respected her. I was very family oriented. I always wanted to hang out with my brothers, being around my brothers. Every, anywhere they went, I wanted to go, but I couldn't. Roderick was the only one that would take me with him every once in a while. He would take me with him, like skating um, or to house parties. Rodney was older than me. I have um, four of my brothers as well, but I was the sister, the next to the youngest, but it was like I was the oldest. I, I was the big sister. I was the glue. Then my mom, um, she got sick and my dad got sick. My dad passed away and my mom passed away. 
So they kind of relied on me a lot more. I started drinking a lot to cope with the issues that I didn't know how to deal with in life. Used to being sheltered by my brothers and only them, I was very naive and I didn't have any um, street knowledge. So I got caught up with the wrong people. And when I needed my brothers the most, um, instead of me gravitating to them, I stayed away and grieved and mourned in my own way. And that was a grave mistake for me, something that I regret today. I thought I had it all together, but I didn't. I got caught up in the wrong things with the wrong people, and I ended up going away for 26 years of my life. I was infatuated by the gang lifestyle, so me and some of my friends tried to start a little game called Baby Harlem Crips. This is like in 72, 73. Yeah, but it didn't last long, because once my father found out about it, he told me, you officially out of the gang, so like I said, I feared my father at the time because, you know, he used to tell me, if you come in the house crying, I'm gonna whoop you. So I used to say, man, I'd rather fight instead of go in the house and get a whooping because that's how, how heavy his hand was. So, you know, once he found out I was hanging around little guys that was trying to start a game, he told me we pitched it out. So after that, that's when we moved to 36. And it didn't get no better because him and my mother just kept getting into all the cases. One time, I just couldn't take it no more. So I tried to, I, well, I didn't try to defend my mother because he had her down the ground beating so I just did what I had to do and I stabbed him in the shoulder. I didn't try to kill him, but I was just trying to get him to get off my mother at that point. You know what I'm saying? By me being a preteen, that's what kids do. I was uh, defending my mother's honor. So long story short, that's how that happened. And him and my mother broke up for like five or six years, me and him didn't speak that much because he felt like he just couldn't trust me no more in the house. And I told him, well, you know, I did what any kid would do. I didn't know what was you gonna do to her. I, you had on the ground, so I defended her. From age 13 all the way till I was like 19, me and him didn't hardly speak that much. Then when I did speak to him, it was all just one or two sentences, hey, how you doing, this, that, and all, and I'm gone, stuff like that. So he moved back to Florida in 74. That was the early childhood. That was my teen lifestyle. My first time I got incarcerated, a friend of mine came to the house. I was 13, and he said, uh, Come on, man, I, help. I need you to help me do a lick. I said, oh, what? You know, we shouldn't be breaking this house. I was 13, we had just moved to North Long Beach. I saw it, so I wanted to be cool like him, so I went and helped him break into the house. And that was my first time, even though we got away with it, but later on down the line, they found, I guess they, the lady found stuff that was missing from my house that we had, so she put two and two together and called the police to my house, and they found all the stuff that was in our garage, so basically they didn't, all I got was that time was uh, six months probation. So that was my first time dealing with the criminal system. As later on in my life, I started getting more involved into doing robberies and burglaries and more and more burglaries, snatching purses and stuff. And it just, just became a lifestyle. I've been trying to be a hustler, get that quick money. Yeah, the second time I went jail was a, for a robbery. They gave me a year probation on that. The third time I went, it was for a burglary. I got caught because uh, coming out the house and. The guy drew arms. I was about 17 at the time when I caught that. My first, actually first, that was my first time actually going to jail. Going time, cause I went from LP to North, Norwalk with the Youth Authority and I went to uh, California Youth Center. I stayed there for nine months. So that's actually my first time actually doing time. The longest I've done is the time I just did now, I did 26 and a half. I was at home cooking, cleaning, listening to music. I had seen a, a, a formal, um, friend that I hadn't seen like in over a year. And my brother had just passed and 
all kind of things were happening in my house. It just got robbed, all kind of stuff. So my neighbor had seen him and told him about it. And he basically told me that he was coming by to check on me. He just came and said that he wanted to make sure I was okay. And um, I believe that's what he wanted. That's what he was doing. I was vulnerable. He knew everything that happened and he made, led me to believe that. He was my protector to keep me safe. And I really needed that at that point in my life. I, I was looking for a protector. I was away from my brothers. I was in a different city, really didn't know uh, many people. So I kind of gravitated toward the men in my life to keep me safe, you know. So he was filling that void in my life, you know, that my bro I, I believed he was, that my brothers and my father filled. So I trusted him. Then he's got out of hand and, um, he betrayed me um, and he had his own agenda and it was um, a domestic violence crime that started in my home with him and his girlfriend. I didn't say anything or do anything about it. Um, I felt trapped. I was afraid for my life and my son's life. I um, was I was threatened, my son was threatened. I just didn't know what to do. So um, I panicked basically and I basically did whatever he wanted me to do. So I wouldn't end up like her. He took her and left her for dead, and they came back and they arrested me for accomplice to uh, the attempted murder. I did 26 years away from my family and my son. I only have one son, and um, I was a mother, you know? I, I drank. I um, still took care of my business. Basically, I was functional, you know, but... Um, my life just ended over having the wrong people. Two counts of attempted murder and shooting in a dwelled era with an unauthorized gun. And plus it was a three strikes. These three strikes they just came out at the time, so they used everything from my past to that to, to strike you out. Well, that day, it all started when I met this girl named Lillian at the time. Uh, me and my brother was living in North Long Beach. We had an apartment together. We was on our way to a family picnic, and I seen this girl you know, me and her started talking. So for three months into our relationship, everything was cool. And then all of a sudden, this guy, which was an ex-boyfriend at the time, just started pulling up, he trying to get with her. And she's telling him, look, you can't you come around my house. I have a boyfriend now, you know, she's that this ain't cool. And even the sister was telling him, look, you have to stop coming around her because you're going to cause problems coming around here because she has a boyfriend. So oh, well, I ain't tripping, I'm just a friend, this, that, and other. So one day I'm coming home from work, and I see his car parked in front of her house. So I pull up in front of the house and I said, what's going on? She's like, what? You know, it's your friend, your friend downstairs sitting in front of your house. So I went to uh, track out on Long Beach Boulevard to get some pieces for my car. When I came back, he had beat her up. I mean, beat the crap out. So right then and there, I, I didn't do nothing at the time until the next time he put sugar in the tank of the car. So I'm sitting there asking her, you know, what's going on? You still dating this dude or something? Cause it's, it's just, this just doesn't add up with all this, you know, this stuff you got going with him. I see him again, he's driving down my street. I tell her, I said, look, call this dude and tell this dude to stop coming around my house because if I bring my kids at. Now, if he want a problem, we can have, we can sell it like men. At the time, I'm telling you, we sell like gangsters. I'm telling him, so, you know, he driving by like he's shooting at me with his gun. So I took my, I'm, like I said, I lived the life. Took my gun out and I put my gun in the hood of the car. I told him we could do this, the gangster world, we could do the old school way. And he's talking about, you going to jail, so. Yeah, two days after I came back from Florida, I seen him. He had threw a brick through my car window, so I told her, I made her call him. 
tell me where he stayed, show me where he stayed. So when he came down to teach again, I just shot him. Like I told myself, I told him, if I see you coming down the street again, I'm gonna handle my business. And I handled my business. Not knowing that he was gonna go crying, telling the police that I tried to kill him. And uh, that's how I got the 27 alive. Well, it took me two years to fight the case. I stayed in the county for two years. So it took me a while to fight the case. And at the time, when they when I lost the case in three strikes, they, they had gave me 64 to life instead of 27 to life. So when they said 64, I just like, I don't give a fuck about nothing. You know what I'm saying? I got 64 years, I'm never gonna get I'm gonna be old by, by the time I get out, I'll be damn near 90. I'm going through the process of having my attorney trying to get me to go back to court. So I was trying to fight it, get back in the court. So when I did finally get back in the court in the Romero, the judge told me that they over, they over me on the fact that I was trying to kill the one dude, but I wasn't in detention trying to kill the other dude. And the fact that they used my YA case against me, which was they, they wasn't supposed to. So he told me he struck the case and broke it down from 64 to 27 to life. I went to Chowchilla, California Women's Prison. I was on close custody for two years, a closed A, a closed B. My sentence was a seven to life sentence. So that meant that I only could do close custody jobs. All I did was just work and then go back to my, my um, cell. There's eight people in a cell and there was a lot of different personalities, a lot of people there for different reasons. I was very quiet, I was very shy and I just wanted to do my time as best as I could you know, and just not be in the mix and to just try to get home as fast as I could to my child. He was 14 when I was arrested and me and him was very close. We were very close and I was very close to my family. So my heart was broken um, being away from my, my child. I had never been away from him before. I didn't have a voice. I was just hurt and I didn't know how to deal with the time that I had received. Um, Actually, I was in pretty much denial of the time, you know, that I had. I didn't understand what that time meant until the women were telling me, oh, you got a hard sentence, you got a seven in life. That's a hard sentence. You're gonna be down a long time, a long time. There's women that have, have been in 30, 40 years with that sentence. And I kept saying, not me, not me. I'm going home. I'm going home soon. I didn't understand what an L meant, what seven in life meant. An L meant that you do that seven years until seven years to life to when they feel that you're ready to go home. I was told that I would do seven years and go home, but that wasn't the case at all. Every time I would go to board and they would tell me no, and I would have to tell my family not this time not this time. I found that I really didn't know myself or who I was or things that um, I was in denial about, things that I had pushed back um, in myself that I didn't want to deal with, you know? I was lying to myself. Denial is lying to yourself and don't even know it. I pushed back so much hurt, so much abuse, so much um, domestic violence in my life that I couldn't wrap my head around until I started going to groups in prison and talking about it. 
because I had lost my voice and I didn't talk about anything. I would just smile and or say hello. But um, when I started going to my groups and uh, talking about things, things were just coming out. Things that I really didn't remember, but it was like coming out. And then I was listening to other people as well talk about things. And I, I just start seeing things in my life that had flashed by or things that um, I remembered that um, I had been through some of the same things, but I didn't want to talk about them because there was a lot of shame and guilt there. I had molestations, I had rapes, um, stuff that I had pushed down and I never got help for. So those things I believe led me to alcohol and drug use, you know, and I needed help for that and I never did get help for it. When I first started, it was a new prison called High Desert. Soon we walk in the prison, everything in the cells was brand new. The prison's only been open like two weeks. So I was the first person in that cell. I remember the first day thinking, man, I, I, I messed up. I, I'm gonna be here for the rest of my life. I had just had a young baby daughter. She was only nine months old. I had a 14-year-old daughter. I had left both of them at the time. So I, I'm just thinking, I don't, I don't screw my life. I could have dealt with that in a better way instead of just trying to use violence the street way. You know, me and him, I already had a fight. I already beat him up, so I didn't even really have to prove a point about why I had to shoot him. But, you know, like I said, that was that gangster mentality I had, you know what I'm saying? I, I just wanted to get rid of this dude because this dude just coming around my place like, you know, he's dealing with a buster, so I just showed him who he was dealing with. Then when I dealt with him, I didn't know he was going to turn into the little snitch rat that he was. But, oh man, life in the pen is, is different. I, I did 27 years and I had five fights. And all my fights were with both me, all my homeboys from Long Beach all because of the fact that, see, everybody knows Long Beach is nothing, but the whole entire city of Long Beach is, is and we gonna get into the game, then the whole entire city of Long Beach is all based on just one big crib set. There's no bloods in Long Beach, so we do a lot of politics with each other because I'm from the west side and they's from the east side, so being the older homie and the OGs that we call it, the dudes from the east side didn't wanna hear what I had to say, but like I said, it's politics involved. If I know how to survive, how to run a car, how to keep you from being in debt, somebody from another car comes tell us, your homeboy owe me this much money, we need this, that, and other. So we have to discipline him or check him to make him keep in line. That's how pretty much my life was in prison. I was always, cause I'm the OG, I'm from, I'm original. I basically started my neighborhood back in 79. Prison life is how you, how you survive. You do the best you can, you sell cigarettes, you work in the kitchen, you know, everybody knows drugs in there. They know his phones in there now, so. You do what you can to survive. I got a gang of tattoos when I was in there. My grandmother died, I got her put on me. Then my Uncle Bob, he died. I got him put on me right there. Then I got my mother's name put on me for Mother's Day. This is my grandmother's name. Then I got my daughter's name all up here. Now, once I became a Muslim, I started going Arabic stuff, you know, getting Arabic tattoos and stuff, meaning about the way of life and how man's mind evolved from being a gang member to becoming a Muslim brother. The food we really didn't get a good nourishment or food. Most of the food that we were given was food, like a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of potatoes, beans, rice, stuff like that, fattening stuff uh, that just blew you up. No vegetables hardly, just maybe frozen ones, same ones all the time. Back in the early 80s, Food in prison was cool. They used to give you real steaks and real chicken and real food. Now everything is processed. It's processed meat, processed chicken, and 
everything is terrible and then everything is going green because they want everybody to be healthy. So they feed you a lot of veggie food and no seasoning or nothing. It's just, I mean, it's good for people who don't like eating meat, but I, I, like to eat, I like to eat real food. I was really ready to go because I really felt that I was going home this time because I had did a lot of work and um, I had faced a lot of, of my demons. I was able to uh, articulate the things that I needed to say and, and, and let them know the change who I was today. I could just tell that um, by the way things were going, um, that the, the presence of my higher power was there and my, my father was there because there were so many instances, things that happened like the commissioner that was supposed to be there wasn't there and he's a hard commissioner, he wasn't there. Um, the DA wasn't there. He was a DA that never wanted me to go home. They told me, well, Ms. Thomas, um, your commissioner, we are waiting for the commissioner and we're waiting for the DA. We'll give them five minutes. Uh, five minutes came around and they didn't show. So they said, well, we're just gonna start and we'll have another new commissioner come out. And I was thankful for that and everything ran so smoothly. One of the commissioners that was there with me was one of the commissioners that was with my last hearing, and he asked me a lot of questions, and um, I was able to answer the questions that he needed. I was able to elaborate more. I just felt peace. I, I felt um, I needed to just speak my truth and, and, and get it out, and I was thankful, and, and I felt that I was going home, and um, I just held on to that. Once you go to board, you think you got it made. Oh, I can go there and do this and do that, and try to use these big words. But see, they can see through that. The first time I went to the parole board, they asked me about a word because I had someone help me do my paperwork, right? So I don't even remember the word because it was like a big 20-hour word. When I wrote it in my report, I was like, man, I hope he don't ask me a question about this word. And he did. He said, because I don't even know what this word means. I went to college. I was like, uh, once I seen that, I said, he's gonna, they're going to deny me my parole board because I couldn't explain the words, even though it sounded good on paper. So the first time I went to the parole board, they, they, they did deny me because they asked me a question about, uh, if you're an OG and you started your own set, that makes you a shot caller. And I said, I'm not a shot caller. They said, well, if you started your own set, that makes you a shot caller. They said, when you come in the yard, what do guys say to you? They said, what's up, Steve? Oh, how you doing, Steve, with this, that, and other? And once he said that, I said, oh, man, I realized it. That's how they tweaked me tricked me on the question about not being able to get out. So I said, okay, I got it now. I have to admit every part about my lifestyle or why, how I got to this point. I had to wait three years for that to go back. So when I, and in that process of that three years, I went and taught about how to be a non-gang member, how to, I used to be in gangs, how I survived from being in prison, how I avoided from being stabbed, or how I avoided from being caught up in, from one gang to another gang. When I got tired of being in the game, I became a Muslim. The reason is fact, like I said, I had five fights with my so-called friends because of the simple fact they didn't want to hear what I had to say about how we supposed to run the car. The next time I went to the board, I said, look, I get it now, I understand. I was, I am what you call a shot caller. Yes, I am. I, that person you see today is not the person I was back in the, when I came in in 94. My brother Roger was there to pick me up on the day that I was released. I, I was happy about that. And then I got to go to the, through the gates finally to see my family. And um, 
that was the happiest day of my life to see my brothers again and uh, my child again. And um, at that point, I was like, you know, how much time am I gonna get with them? You know, I have to be at this place, transitional home. You know, I have to be there for six months to a year. Um, I have to report to my parole officer. What do I do first? I called around and they told me that I'd have to report to my parole officer in 24 hours. So I wanted to spend some time with my family and we had like a, mm, maybe an hour or two and that was it. Oh, the day I came home, it was uh, my two brothers and my three sisters. Then we surprised my mom, we didn't tell her I was coming home. Well, she knew I was coming home, but we didn't tell her the day it was gonna pick me up. So we surprised, when they came to pick me up, we surprised them when out to Victorville and seen her, spent the night over there. And the next day, that's when I went to the halfway house. Oh, man, but the best day of my, since my release, we just had a party for me and my mother about a week ago. And it was a surprise party, and she didn't even know about it. Cause I just turned 60, she just turned 75. And I was telling her, I said, I'm not even sweating it. my birthday, cause our birthdays are a day apart. I said, today is all about you, cause you made the 75. And I made it out, even though my young baby brother's still in prison, but by me making it out, she, at least she has one of us to be out there. That was very, that, that, Still today, I'm still glowing about that. Just seeing her so happy and glow, and it just made me happy. You know, that's that was to me since I've been out. That was the best day since I've been out because she was happy. My first meal was a steak, a salad, a pie, piece of pie, and it was good. I couldn't eat all my food. I was just thinking I wanted to spend time with my family and my son. Oh yeah, my first meal was Popeye's chicken. <laughs> I wanted to taste it, cause they was making a big fuss when I was in, when I was in the end, we used to see, watch the news and see people fighting all these Popeye's chicken. So I said, I gotta try that, man. I wanna see why they fighting all this chicken. So my first meal was Popeye. We stopped in Sacramento at a Popeye's chicken coming down from Sacramento to here to the halfway house. And we stopped and got some Popeye's and I was like, it wasn't all that. I don't see why they fighting all this chicken. <laughs> they told me I had to report uh, and be there in an hour. And um, when I got there, they showed me my room where I would be staying and told me all the house rules, uh, things, how things were supposed to be and the rules I had to follow. I've been home for two months. I paroled April 12th, 2022. It's really hard for me right now too, is learning all these new things, even to use a phone. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to learn to use a phone. It's a lot of things that I, I wasn't prepared for. And it gets very overwhelming at times. I have to rely on my family a whole lot for a, a lot of things. It's gonna take its time and it's all I can do is take it one day at a time. The dreams that I did have, I wanted to start my own business, a hair shop and a beauty supply. And that was, that was my plans to do, so I didn't get to do that. I wanted to do so because where I live was predominantly Caucasian and uh, Hispanic, and I wanted to open up a black hair care beauty supply and shop where people of color could go. Um, my son, I missed out on so much of his life, not being able to be a mom, not being there, missing birthdays, missing graduations. I didn't even get visits from my child. 
I wasn't even allowed to get visits. Well, I didn't get any visits from him. My child got arrested and did 10 years, so I didn't get to see him at all while I was, was incarcerated. That hurt a lot. So basically, I didn't get to see my son until I got home. It hurted me not being there for him during his rough time and um, being a part of his growing up, that affected me so much, you know, and I had a lot of guilt and shame about that. And I still do, you know, because uh, women need their children. Women need their family. You know, women are nurturers. So I wasn't able to do that with mine because they made it so hard for me. I couldn't get any visits or anything. My name is Roderick Cheatham. Cheryl's my sister. Born and raised in Los Angeles, California. And we had a good childhood. We had a perfect mom. Stepdad loved Saul, which is Cheryl's father. Cheryl was the only girl. And um, she was a pain in the butt a lot of times because she was spoiled to death. And um, all us boys grew up. We didn't have no choice but to spoil her also. My mom didn't go for nothing else. Cheryl was like the flower of our lives. She was the prettiest thing on Easter and the cutest thing every morning. I basically walked her to school every day, picked her up at lunch and walked her home. Then I would go back to school. Then she went off into high school. She was perfect in high school. Never, no problem. Everybody always loved my only sister. As life went on, we grew up. I got into truck driving. And one day I left, went out of town on a run, came back and never seen my sister no more for 27 years. I never seen her or touched her. I mean, took that one trip back south and came back and my sister was out of my life for 27 years. I never touched her or held her. Dude, I had an old felony, so I couldn't ever see her. That was a dramatic change in my life. I remember when I came back and went to court and saw her in court, I'll never forget it. No one would ever think that it's daytime at 12 o'clock noon, but all of a sudden it went dark at 12.01. But that was the big effect on me because she's always been my little baby sister. And she never was, she, she never made bad decisions like that. I guess I was gone too long. Me and her were like, was really the closest too. Whatever problem she had, I always solved it, regardless of what problem it was. But she never had no bad problems. I mean, never fought, she was a cheerleader. Everybody loved her. All her girlfriends met up at our house. You know, so I don't know, but within a, maybe a month time, seemed like some kind of shadow must have came over her to even get caught up in a situation like that. You know, I never learned the truth because ain't nobody gonna never tell you 100% what caused it. I did what a big brother do, I ran to do with a out of there. But as I left out of town, how the devil works, you know what I mean? God's the way the devil gonna play. My name is uh, Michael Thomas. I am the younger brother of Cheryl Thomas. Cheryl was always a, a happy-go-lucky young lady, um, very kind-spirited, always helping others, had a lot of friends, very popular. Um, everybody liked Cheryl. Cheryl liked to do a lot of like arts and crafts, like my grandmother taught her how to um, make blankets and quilts and things of that nature. She used to always crochet and always had a, had a knitting needle all the time when we were kids. She was always making something. The day that my sister was incarcerated actually was 
the darkest day of my life. I received a phone call uh, in the middle of the night from law enforcement indicating that my sister had been arrested. At the time when she was arrested, my nephew was at home with her at the time she was arrested. So they took my nephew along with her to the, to the station. They were indicating they only wanted me to come and pick up my nephew. They said it was um, attempted murder. Couldn't believe it, like impossible. I didn't think something like that could ever possibly happen to my sister. I, I knew, I, I figured that something had to, well, maybe they made a mistake or something, they, you know what I mean, a mistaken identity or something. They wasn't giving me very much information at that time. Yeah, it was very sad because I just felt like, am I ever gonna see my sister again? I know that they give you seven years, but I didn't know what the definition of life actually meant. Everything became very surreal at that point. When she went to prison, I lost a sister. I had just lost my mom. You know, and then she came. I lost her. I never gave up on her. You know, and um, she's still strong. She kept going, kept going. She was much stronger than me. They say out of sight, out of mind. That's not true. Because my sister never left my heart. Never, ever, not one day, not one night. I didn't think about her before I went to sleep. Like I say, she was the sunshine in my life. I picked her up. Yeah, we was, we was there, six in the morning. I believe if I would have walked in a store and she was standing next to me, I wouldn't know who she was. When she went in, she weighed probably like 120. When she came out, she weighed like 220. But uh, she was beautiful as ever. She had the same pretty smile, you know. And I was just so thankful to see her. Whenever she asked me, do I do it? Being her Uber driver, um, being her financial advisor, um, basically just doing whatever she needed me to do. I mean, nothing's too much. It's back to normal. Before she went in, this is what I was doing. I was always her big brother, and I always played the role. So now my job is back, and I'm glad. The hardest part about my sister being incarcerated was not knowing if she was going to ever come home, not knowing what she had to do for sure to get out, not knowing if I was going to be alive when she get out. That was something that I dealt with every day, but I had to keep going. I had gotten custody of my nephew, so I had to raise him, deal with all the things that goes with being a parent. The crying spells in the middle of the night, uh, my nephew missing his mom because he was an only child, having issues in school because of the traumatics that he dealt with during and leading up to his mother's actual incarceration, which was very hard to deal with over um, a long period of years. So I remember the day that she actually got home. It took a while to sink in that she was actually there. After being away so long, it was just really hard to believe that her day had come for her to be reunited with her family. It was like a dream, actually because at some point over the years, going back and forth before panels of uh, board members and things like that over the years, where she was over and over denied 
Sometimes you kind of give up hope that you just think it's just probably not going to ever happen. And it actually did. So I'm just glad that my sister's home, man. I, I can't, um, I, I can't put it no more, uh, no different than that. I'm, I'm happy. My life feels complete now. The old Cheryl um, was lost. She was broken. She was confused in a lot of uh, abusive relationships, and I didn't know how to deal with them. Um, I kept a lot of secrets, so there was a lot of uh, shame and guilt. There was a lot of secrets that my family didn't know about. My brothers didn't even know about me being uh, molested and raped or whatever. And because I was told at a young age, if I told anyone something bad would happen to me. So I kept it a secret and I continued to lie. Today, I'm a woman with a voice, a woman that has a lot to say, to speak on my past today and um, know that it didn't define me. But I like who I am today. You know, I, I've changed, I've grown, I've, I've healed. I want to bring change um, into my community and just change into the world as a person. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. Well, for me to get back in society, it's just, you know what I'm saying, trying to stay financially stable. You know, every time I try to save a little money, I have to spend a little money because I always have to do this, I have to do that, or daddy, I need this, or can you help me pay this? And I'm like, you know, but that's life, you know, I'd rather do this instead of be in prison. I had a dream when I was a kid, I wanted to be an athlete. I, and I was pretty good at it one time when, my, when me and my, my mother had remarried again, my stepfather, he had me into all kinds of sports and stuff. So I kind of like stopped trying to be a thug. This was like from 14, 15, and 16 till I became a father. Yeah, see, I became a young father 16 years. So 14, 15, 16, I was, a, I was a good athlete. I played football, I ran track, you know, so I was good. I was all city in Long Beach, in the track field, track thing and stuff, you know what I'm saying? Then my mother and my stepfather broke up. I just tend to go back to the streets and just started doing my doing my thing again. You know what I'm saying? It kind of messed up my little dreams of wanting to be in the sports world. My name is Tanya Franklin. Steve is my big brother. It's seven of us. I'm the baby. I'm from Long Beach, California. Born and raised, well, him being the oldest, my father left when I was one. As I grew up, that's all I knew was my brothers, my mom, my sister. Him being 12, 13, in and out of jail due to gangs, trying to be the man of the house. He was trying to do the right thing and just got caught up in gang violence. Him trying to be my daddy and trying to be a role model for all of us and then Went the wrong way, started his own gang hood. But when he was home, it was always positive and he always tried to teach us what to do as the big brother while us not having our father in the home. I really don't know my dad. And when he left my mom, well, my mom left him, I just found this out this time that my brother stabbed my dad because he was trying to beat up my mom. I just found all this out. So it was like, we having a family reunion, and he was like, I forgave him, but I ain't never forgot. So I'm going with a positive head, trying to forgive him too, because I don't even know him. I look at my brother, which is Steve, as my, as my father, you know what I'm saying? 
like I said, it's seven of us, and we all got the same daddy. They grew up with him, but my mom left him when I was one. And like I just said, I didn't even know until now that my brother stabbed him, you know? So I'm like, do I want to meet this man? I mean, you know, I really don't know that. And I'm your baby child. I was a baby, you know? That still got play a big impact on me to where I had to have my brothers act like they my father and you still here. That played a big impact on me. My brother was gone 27 years. My mom being a single parent, she tried to do the best she could for all of us, which all of us ended up turning out to be somebody like me, a LVN nurse. As a right moving forward to where he's come from, like I told him, I see a lot of change in you. And I know it's gonna be hard because by you doing 27 years to come back to this world and to the society, but everything's changed, the whole world system changed. He's doing actually good to me. He, his progress is really changing. He's, he's humble, he's not the old person he used to be. And to tell you the truth, I, I used to look at my brother like I'm scared of him myself, you know? But I love him. And like I said, I look at him and my brother that's outside as, as like my role model, my pops. When I look at my kids today, I look in the eyes and I just think that, um, and I tell them every time I'm so sorry I abandoned you guys because I wasn't there for you because I have two girls. Everybody knows the girls need their father than they like. They both live in Vegas. They they struggling with their lives now, but if I'd have been there, it would have been a better life for them. You know, because they had their father figure there for them. Every now and then I sit back and I think, and I just look at myself and then I feel good when I be just driving around in my car and I just be like coming from Rancho Cucamon to my sister's house and it'd be a nice, good day, like day like today. And I think to myself, I said, I came a long way from being in prison to now to where I didn't think I would ever get out of jail to now I'm out of jail and I'm living my life carefree. I have no, no, no worries. I, credit is, I'm trying to keep my head above credit, but I, hey, it's better than being in prison any day. Being in there, it's just, you have to go by what they say. You have to ask them, can you use the restroom? And when you need to, especially if you have lockdowns, you have to ask them, can I use the restroom? And that's no way of life. I didn't have to take the gun and try and shoot him. I could have did the same thing he did and called the cops, but see, but me coming from the streets, to us, that's put, you know, that's that's a buster's way. That's how they get out. You know what I'm saying? That's that's the way we used to think. You know what I'm saying? But now I think, look, if you're gonna call the cops, I'll call the cops too, because I'm not I'm gonna keep everything on the paper. So we're gonna keep it all clean. You know what I'm saying? So I have no problem telling them a person, hey, I'll call the cops, honey. I ain't tripping. Now I know. There's other ways I have to do it. You use your mind first before you, you know what I'm saying, react. You use your head. You know, there's a better way to do it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, instead of just using the gun, because that look what it got me. <laughs>